Father, thank you for the joy that we see in the room every week we join here, Father. It's joy from fellowship and joy from humor and joy from friendships and those things matter. But, Father, more than anything, it is the joy of the Spirit, a joy that is inexpressible, a joy, Father, that we can forget in the dark moments of our week and in the midst of trials, but it's a joy that never leaves us. It's a joy in knowing, Father, that the things of this world are temporary. It's a joy in understanding, Father, the eternity of your word and your promises. It's the joy, Father, of knowing what lays before us, what lies before us in the, in the realm that we will join one day because of our faith. It is the joy, Father, of knowing you. And we thank you, Father, for that joy. It overcomes all these things that we experience. It, it gives us a peace, Father, that passes understanding. It is the, the bread of life for us, Father. And we long for it to be something, Father, that guides our thoughts and our emotions even in those difficult periods of our life. We long for it, Father, as the, the rock we can rest on when we have nothing else. We also long to share it, Father. We long for others who do not know of this peace and joy that comes by a faith and a relationship with Christ that we could find the avenue to share it with them, find the opportunity. And Father, we thank you every week for the opportunity to come into this room to hear your word proclaimed, to have it rest in our hearts, to have it remind us of the truths that we know, and to pull us forward, Father, into a closer walk with you. Thank you for that blessing. May the words on the page this morning be the truth and love of Christ in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 27 still has a bit to go, but we'll finish today and move into chapter 28 in this story of Jacob, now the next man of the patriarchs in our view. You can turn with me to the end of chapter 27. We'll pick up reading there in about verse 41. You know, throughout this study, as I've gone through Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, we've noticed on numerous occasions how God has maintained his sovereignty, his control over all the details of everyone's situation, over all these events. But at the same time, each person in this story has made sinful choices of their own, choices that do not trace to God. God is not the author of that sin. All of that, though, falls under the sovereignty of God. One of the things we mentioned along that line of discussion was that even though God is going to work through their sin to accomplish his intentions and his purposes, sin still has consequences. And God is going to bring those consequences to each person. And as chapter 27 ends, we move now into one of the consequences for the sin that we've seen play out in this chapter. But God's sovereignty doesn't end at that doorstep of consequences. So that even in the way he brings about consequence for sin, he is still at work in those events to accomplish his good purpose. So there's no end to the sovereignty of God. There's never a point in which you can draw a line. In our own experience studying scripture, we tend to start at one place in our understanding of God's sovereignty. But inevitably, as we study, we'll end up in a different place. And where we start is by drawing a circle around us, metaphorically speaking, and we come to conclude that everything outside that circle is God's control. And everything inside that circle, well, that's up to me. And then I read scripture. And as I learn more about who God is and how he works, over time, that circle starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller until one day it disappears. And I realize that though I do have choices and I do make decisions and I do, in the course of that, make 
sinful choices. Nevertheless, nothing is outside God's control and sovereignty. There's no point at which I draw a line and I say, God, you've got that. I'll take care of this. He respects no such line. So we have to remember Jacob here has not just been a son of Isaac or a man who's been sinning and deceiving or the victim of some conspiracy and, and so on. He is the holder of a covenant with the living God. And he holds, by virtue of that covenant, promises of God and now the patriarchal authority within this family. So that leads us to a question as we go forward in our study. How does God remain faithful to his promises to this man, even while he holds Jacob accountable for his deception and his sins? How does God reconcile those two? Chapter 28 will begin to give us those answers. More importantly, maybe, we also begin a new phase here in Jacob's life. There's a story about to start in chapter 28 that will go for some time. We're going to watch Jacob, who is a man who's learned to get what he wants through deception and has come to believe that scheming is the only way to work, given his family's dynamic. And nevertheless, he has to grow spiritually as a result of his union through covenant with God. And he has a lot to learn. A lot to learn about who God is and about how he's to approach God. And God is now about to start a process in which he uses Jacob's sin and the sin of others, for that matter, to mold Jacob into a man who will ultimately come to trust the Lord rather than to trust in his own scheming. That's a tough thing to do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It will take years and years of difficult training. First, we go into the end of chapter 27 to begin witnessing the consequences of Jacob's deception. Verse 41, and we'll read from there to the end of the chapter. And so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Well, following the deception of Isaac in the tent, Esau now has a grudge to bear with his brother, and we clearly understand why he would feel that way. Now, the word there for grudge in Hebrew, it's actually a very curious word in Hebrew. It provides actually another proof of another fulfillment of God's eternal decrees because the word literally means hostility. Or you could also say to persecute someone. That would be another way you can interpret it, to persecute. Remember we said earlier that Esau is a picture of unbelievers, generally speaking. In all that he has done and all that's happened to him, we can see a clear picture developing of what life is like in typical fashion for an unbelieving person. Esau represents first the natural sinful state of man, the man who is born of the seed of serpent, going back to Genesis 3, an ungodly man, 
A worldly man, a godless man, Hebrews calls him. We also noted that he is excluded from the promises and the blessings of God because he despised the word of God. That is also true for the unbeliever. Then we notice that he experiences worldly sorrow as a consequence of his sin. But yet, Hebrews tells us he had no potential for the repentance that comes from God and leads to salvation. And there again, you see an example of the unbelieving world. And then finally, and here's the new piece, he will persecute the children of God because there is always to be enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. This is showing us once again here that enmity or persecution is taking hold in the heart of Esau because of the difference between him and Jacob, the difference defined by their relationship with God. Those who are of God will always be those persecuted by the ones who do not know God. And that began, as you remember, with Cain and Abel. This is something God said must be. And so Esau says to himself, I'm going to kill my brother. I don't know when and how, but I know I'm going to do it. But he knew better than to do it while Isaac was still alive. And you notice he says, the days for my father are near. The point being, I know my dad can't be too far from death. When he dies, that's when I'll strike. What he knew was that if he committed murder, which is what that would be, of course, killing his brother would be murder. If he did that while his father was still alive, then he would be put to death, more than likely, by his father as a penalty for murder, for that was the penalty in the day. But if he waited for Isaac to die first, well, then who became the patriarchal authority in the family? Well, Jacob. But if he kills Jacob then it would revert to him. So if he were to kill his brother after his father's death, then there'd be no one to take revenge to, to punish him for that mistake. He would now be head of the clan. Remember, we mentioned a few lessons back that Isaac is not as close to death as everyone is supposing. And in fact, Isaac himself has sort of set this expectation when he decided to go forward with the blessing in the way that he did. But we remember that it is more than likely not the case that Isaac thought he was about to die. He used that as an excuse, as a way of giving reason for why he wanted to give this blessing to Esau in the secretive way that he was trying to go. As we learned back then, Isaac lives another 43 years after this moment. So Esau's got an awful lot of waiting to do if he's going to wait for dad to die first. Rebecca, when she learns of what Esau is planning, and she must have been told by a servant or someone who overheard him speaking, she at once jumps into action here to try to save her younger son again. Isn't it interesting here? Rebecca always seems to be the one who gets the word about what's going to happen and then has the opportunity to jump in and help Jacob. It sure seems like God is speaking to Rebecca here in order to keep Jacob one step ahead of his enemies. I think I recognize a pattern here. In fact, I think I see a pattern that I've recognized in my own life. And I certainly see this in the lives of others from time to time. What is the pattern? Well, when the man in the family, specifically the husband in this case, when the man in the family isn't listening to God, God will often speak to the woman about the things that the husband has not been willing to listen to or not been willing to hear. And the woman then will find herself in this uncomfortable circumstance of knowing what should be done while living with a man who won't do it or just ignores it. 
And it's a difficult role for a woman to play because then she bears the burden of finding ways to make things right under the authority of her husband, which obviously is not aligned with her own desires, and to do it knowing what God wants, but having to contend with a disobedient spouse. I don't envy a woman in that situation. What a challenge that must be. And here you see Rebecca standing in Isaac's place yet again to do the right thing in the family. She has received God's revelation concerning the twins when they were in her womb. She was the one given the knowledge of Isaac's secret plans to go around Jacob with the birthright. Now she's the one who learns of Esau's schemes and conspiracy. That's not a coincidence. I think you see God giving Rebecca moments of insight because the same revelation in Isaac's hands has gone nowhere, apparently. You know, throughout Scripture, you're going to find this pattern repeated. It started in the garden, for that matter. You have Adam in the garden, having been given the instructions of God, failing to work according to those instructions. Meanwhile, his wife is doing her very best to defend God's word against the enemy who is more powerful than she is in that kind of an encounter. And then you have later in Israel's history, Naomi in the story of Ruth. You have Deborah in the time of Judges. And there are others if you go through Scripture. But in every case where you see the woman coming to the foreground in a leadership role, that is always portrayed in Scripture as a shameful incident for the men. Now, the women are not being shamed or seen as unrighteous or in doing the wrong thing. Quite the opposite. They're credited for being the heroine in light of their husband's failure or the failure of men in leadership. But that doesn't mean that is the normative expectation for the way things should be. That is a sign that there are problems. It's not a solution, not in the long run. When a man and a woman of faith are united in marriage, the role for leading spiritually falls to the man in that situation. And if the man stumbles in his role, the woman is there to help pick him up, to encourage him and put him back on the right track. But if the man doesn't receive that encouragement, if the man is not going to step up to the plate, if he advocates on his responsibility, then sometimes God has no choice but to speak to the wife so that she understands his will. And then that leads to inevitably to tension in the marriage. The man is still accountable even when he is abdicating his responsibility. But the Lord may give him one more measure of grace to speak through his wife so that he could know something that for whatever reason, he has chosen to ignore the first time. I've seen this pattern in my own life, as I mentioned a moment ago. I can look back on my own life and see this playing out. Often my wife will be the first one to hear the Lord's voice clearly. But I don't think it's because he prefers it that way. I think it's because sometimes I stop listening. And then he'll use Annette to break through my stubbornness. There was a time earlier in our marriage when we moved a lot. When I was in the military, obviously that contributes to a lot of relocation. But even after I left the military for a time, we moved, job-related moves. For the first half of that time, I wasn't even a believer. But even after that, I was still an immature believer. And inevitably, when God was ready to move us on, he would start to speak to us about the need to be ready for that move, to be in the right heart for the fact that we were going to leave behind what we had and join something new. But in my state of rebellion, I wasn't listening for that. In fact, I wasn't interested in that. Quite often, I wanted to stay right where we were. My wife, though, 
would sense God's movement in that way and begin to prepare her own heart, and inevitably that would come out of her, right? You can't have a heart change without seeing some manifestation of it. So the way that would play out in our life was boxes would start showing up in my house. Because we usually moved ourselves for a variety of reasons. So boxes would start showing up and things would start getting cleaned out and given away and the rest packed up and boxes taped. And, and what do you think I'm doing this whole time? What, is it, what are you doing? We're not going anywhere. Why are you packing boxes? And my wife would be very patient about it and just say, well, I just feel like we could do a little cleaning up around here anyway. Or I don't know. I just have a feeling. I don't even remember half of what she said because I didn't want to hear it. But inevitably we moved. I mean, it was so funny. It became a running joke. Now, is that the way God wanted it? I guarantee you, she's, she's very grace-oriented about this. She wouldn't tell you much if you asked her. But I know if she was honest in a moment, she'd tell you, it was a pain in the neck to have a husband who wasn't there with her pulling that process. Instead, she was lifting me as she was lifting the boxes. Now, when I see boxes, I'm a lot more attentive than I used to be. We haven't had any need for that in a long time. We moved 13 times in 11 years. And... And we haven't moved now for almost 10. And I don't know if and when we'll ever move again. But that's not really the point. The point was there were times in our life when we had to go somewhere and do something, physically or spiritually. And God was not just talking to one of us. He was talking to both of us. But I wasn't listening. So what I did was I burdened her not only with the role of the work, but the role of the listening and the communicating. And that was sin. I think I've learned I won't ask her to confirm that. (laughs) Rebecca is living that life. She has a husband who won't listen, doesn't like what he's heard, has tuned God out, and yet she has a son who must be protected, who must be honored, who must have the birthright. Now he's under threat of death from a brother who doesn't understand spiritual things. And she goes to Jacob now out of desperation and she warns him, And she says, Esau is consoling himself with the plan. I love the way she puts that, don't you? That just really speaks to the way the mind and the heart works when we're active in sin. Esau can't act yet, but he feels better just contemplating it. The thought of how he's going to kill him. He must run it through in his mind 50 ways. And Rebecca doesn't want to take a chance that those desires will overcome him. And he may act even before dad were to pass away. And that's the meaning of the words when she says, why should I be bereaved of both of you in the same day? What she's saying is, I don't want you to hang around here and tempt fate. Maybe Esau gets tired of waiting. He kills you before dad's done and then we'll have to kill him too. So her plan is, I'm going to send you away temporarily. Where is she going to send him? You know, that's an interesting question. In this day and age, it's not like there's a Motel 6 down the road. You know, where do you send somebody in a day and age in which people worked and lived within their family unit? There was no other place to go virtually. And he's alone. He doesn't even have a spouse. He doesn't have a family unit of his own. She only has one choice. She's got to send him to a family member. And the only family they have is back in Haran. That's 450 miles away. She's sending him on a 450 mile weekend excursion. Now, she tells him, you're only going to be separated there for a few days. But you have to understand her words here within the culture, within the culture. It's going to take him several weeks just to travel 450 miles by foot or even on an animal. 
And then if he were to turn right around and come back immediately, it would take him several weeks to come back. So even if he spent no time with good old Uncle Laban, he is going to have at least several weeks of absence here. So when she says go for a few days, she means it in their context. And in their context, that meant more like months. A relatively short time in the big scheme of things. But she says, you go. It'll be a while. Not too bad. And I'll call you when your brother's cooled down, when things are good for you to come back. Well, as it's going to turn out, her expectations here are wildly optimistic. First, notice how she avoids any reference here to her own culpability. I find that interesting. The way she paints the picture here, this entire episode is Jacob's fault, forgetting her own role in it. But then she suggests that the hole that's been dug here by their scheming is going to easily be filled with just a little time and distance. Oh, yeah, don't worry. It'll all blow over. The plan here is not only a plan that's going to chastise Jacob, it's also going to chastise Rebecca. And on top of it, it's going to solve a problem that God wants solved for Jacob in the sense of who he marries. And then in verse 46, she plants the idea to her husband. She says to him, oh, you know, I can't stand these women of of Canaan. We need something else, some other solution. What she's doing here, she's planting the seed in, in Isaac's mind for him to have the idea to send Jacob to Haran so that Isaac looks like he made this up. Because after all, Jacob's not going to go unless dad gives him permission. So she's very, very crafty here. She plants this seed. Her suggestion is exactly what God desires, but he has entirely different reasons for what's about to happen. There's great irony in her statements. She expected that by what she's doing, she'll be able to keep Jacob by her side. But as her plan turns out, she will never see Jacob again. And he won't be in Haran for just a few days. He's going to be in Haran for 20 years. And Rebecca will die before he comes back. And then the other side of the irony is the excuse that she gives to send Jacob away. That is, I don't want him to marry any of these local women. To her, that's just an excuse. She just made that up in order to give reason for Isaac to do what she wants. But in reality, that actually becomes the real reason why God put this plan in motion. So her fake reason to get what she really wanted resulted in her not getting what she really wanted, but the fake reason became the real goal. There's God's sovereignty to create the outcome he wants, working through the sin of people and yet holding them accountable for that sin. Because God is going to use Jacob's time in Haran to give him a family. And God will also use Rebecca's excuse here as a mechanism for discipline. In fact, it's ironic. His pursuit of a wife ends up being the reason why he can't come back to see her before she dies. He gets locked into an agreement that holds him there for 14 years without the ability to leave. So let's go into chapter 28 and see now how that plan begins to play out. Verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. 
Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Bedam Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So Rebekah's plan is working right as she expected. She makes the suggestion, and her husband Isaac latches onto it and says, absolutely, good idea, let's send him to Haran. So he commands Jacob to go away. Like Isaac's father Abraham had done before him, Isaac now charges Jacob with not taking a wife from Canaan. You must not. Now that stipulation came from God's own command all the way back to Abraham. When God originally said to Abraham, I am calling you out from this people, you are not to intermarry among them, because if you do, they will corrupt you. You are to remain separate according to the covenant I've established. And so Jacob now is going to follow suit and take a wife from his family, not from the locals. In the course of that commission, Isaac gives another blessing to Jacob. In keeping with the Abrahamic covenant, Isaac is blessing Jacob here with the same fruitfulness that he received from his father Abraham. But notice something about this blessing. It's changed in a very important way, which we will study more later in the course of Jacob's life. Isaac says, you are to become a company of peoples, a company of peoples. Now, Abraham and Isaac never received that promise. Or that stipulation. They've never heard those words before. What were they promised? They were promised to have many descendants, yes, down the line, into all of time. But they themselves only had small families. Abraham had only one child with the promise. Isaac will have only one child with the promise. But now Isaac tells Jacob he will have a large family, many sons. He will end up having a company of peoples. What we know happens after Jacob is the promise of this covenant no longer goes from one person to the next person to the next person. It will go from Jacob into 12 sons, ultimately 13. Well, that's an entirely new prospect, an entirely new way of working that we haven't seen to this point. And we'll have to look at this in more detail when we get there, because we've already said you can't split the birthright. And separate it. How is it possible that we now have this branching of the tree? We'll study more when we get there. For now, notice Isaac simply confirms to Jacob that he is carrying this promise from God. He is the current promise holder. Now let's reflect a little bit on Jacob's life at this moment before we go to the next passage for the day. Let's just think about Jacob. He was appointed by God before birth to be the child of the promise. The one who would hold the birthright that contained God's covenant. And like Abraham and like Isaac before him, Jacob alone carries this special promise. And with it comes blessing. He will have protection. He will have earthly wealth, earthly riches. But he will have, more importantly, eternal inheritance and eternal riches. Now, through a twisted set of circumstances, the birthright did come to Jacob as God intended, and so now here he stands, ready to leave the home under difficult circumstances to go seek a wife. Now, we have no record then at this point of Jacob ever encountering God personally. We have no record of that yet. Now, Grandpa Abraham had plenty of opportunities and even his dad Isaac has seen God personally, but not Jacob yet. We know he has a faithful testimony. We're not doubting his faith, but we have to wonder what did Jacob really understand about these promises? What's going on in his head when he thinks about this God that his father and grandfather have talked about? In fact, Jacob might even be thinking up to this point, 
that all of these promises, all of this blessing, all of this talk about a covenant has been nothing but trouble for me. And I'm not even sure what it's worth at this point. But he does know that his brains and his scheming have gone a long way to getting him what he wants. And he's come to depend on that. So he's about to start down a path of spiritual maturity, one in which he is about to learn what it really means to be in a covenant with the living God. He'll always be sinful and his flaws never go away entirely. But he has a lot of work to do and God's about to put him on the treadmill. Now, before we move into that journey, Moses gives us one final glimpse into the heart of Esau. Now that Esau has seen his brother receive this commission and and this order to leave and he hears dad give this final blessing, the wheels start to turn in his head or maybe wheel in the Esau's case. Verse six. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Bedamaram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padam Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. Esau is such a character, isn't he? He watches Isaac doing what he did with his son Jacob, of sending him off, blessing him before he departs. Now, we remember Esau is upset at Jacob. Esau is angry here at his brother. He's angry particularly at the frustration of having lost the inheritance, having been cut out of the will, basically. And so he's watching Dad now give another blessing to this son as he sends him off. And he starts putting two and two together. The funny part for me is, was it really that hard for him to see this earlier? But suddenly now the light dawns on him and he says, I get it. Mom and dad don't like Canaanite wives. He's only been married to him for a while now, but finally it's figured it out. And he knows that mom and dad now have never been pleased with that decision. So he sees this transpire and he makes some assumptions. Here's what he assumes. He assumes that Isaac must be blessing Jacob because Jacob has obeyed his voice concerning wives and is willing to go get a wife from Rebecca's family. So he says, that's the problem. So he concludes, if I do the same thing, then I will impress my dad and I'll gain his favor and I'll get that blessing that I've been trying to get all this time. Now I see what it is. It's just about the wives. Now, he didn't want to travel 450 miles to solve this problem, so he does the next best thing. The only other family they have within any reasonable distance that he knows of is Ishmael's relatives. Remember Ishmael, right? The brother of of Isaac, Abraham's first son. When Ishmael was kicked out of the house, he traveled, roughly speaking, southward. They settled east of Egypt, which is in the Sinai Peninsula. So just south of where they're sojourning in Canaan is this clan of Ishmael, with ready-made brides. So Esau travels south, meets up with his cousin. She's his cousin. It's the daughter of his, his father's brother. And he marries her, brings her back home. Wouldn't you love to be there when he shows up with, with the new wife for mom and dad? I, I just I see it in my mind. I see him come in with his big smile on his face like a puppy dog. Look what I brought home. You know, like when your cat brings a dead bird and drops it at your feet? And you're like, I know you're pleased at what you're doing, but I didn't want that, right? 
That's the feeling I have of how he must have shown up with his extra wife, expecting dad to just go, oh, great, son. Man, we don't get that moment. I wish Moses had been able to give it to us. I'm guessing that his misguided plan only amplified the family's misery. Because a relative of Ishmael, in the real sense of what's happening here, is no better than a daughter of Canaan, for all the same reasons. These are families or peoples who are forsaken by God. They're outside the grace of God for for God's own purposes. As a rule, they are not receiving his blessings. They are not his people to be uniting with Israel. And not that Esau is one of Israel anyway. There's something very important, very important here. We learn watching Esau at work, watching him striving to obtain something that he can't obtain. The unbelieving world is forever counterfeiting the relationship that can only come by grace from God. That is their style. That is their only alternative. Jacob was a man, we're told, chosen by God, ordained to receive the blessings of God through faith in the promises of God. He brought this, God brought this about by working through men, by working through a grandfather and a father. He moved through the lives of men, but it was him from the beginning and him doing the work and him in his sovereign choice. And he continues to work even now through their lives, fulfilling their promises, blessing them. And the unbelieving world that watches this from the outside, they don't understand the spiritual dynamic. They can only see the results the outcome, the physical manifestations in our lives and in this case in Jacob's life. Now, the basis for those blessings was a relationship with God in a covenant through faith. And all that followed in Isaac's life, all that happened for him, all that will happen for Jacob, all of those circumstances are built on a foundation of faith and relationship. All of it under the sovereign control of God's hands. So now here's Esau. Esau is watching this from the outside, looking in. He doesn't have that foundation. He's not standing on the promises of God, as the song goes. He is not in faith. He is not in covenant. He does not know spiritual things. But like all unbelievers, without an ability to understand it spiritually, he has to make sense of it in an earthly way. He has to explain it in terms of earthly attachments, earthly behaviors, earthly relationships. And so he does. He studies it. He studies the behavior of his father. He studies the behavior of his brother. He watches that dynamic. And so he assumes that if I mimic all those behaviors, I get the same spiritual result. Doesn't work that way. The works of Jacob's life and the blessings that followed were a result of the relationship that he had with God, formed by and through faith. His work, Jacob's work, didn't create the relationship. The results of that relationship were evident in his works. What Esau is doing is trying to reverse that equation. He's trying to pour the water uphill, so to speak. And he wants to produce the blessings through his works. That is the pattern of every unbeliever. Knowing that is important for two reasons for us today. First and foremost, we need to make sure that our own prospect of salvation has not been built in this way. That we're not one of the self-deceived who, for whatever reason, 
have seen this behavior among others and have taken for granted that if I just mimic the behavior, if I go to church when they do, if I sing like they do, if I just mimic, then I'm effectively creating the very thing that they have. There's an awful lot of unbelievers in the Christian culture. And they're there only because of this dynamic. Because they substitute works for faith, assuming that they're one and the same. Do we have, in fact, the very thing we think we have? Are we saved by a faith in God's work? By a relationship that has brought us into the family of God? And then because of that, we do works that God asks us to do? Or are we just faking it? You'll know in your heart. But the second reason we need to know this is so that we can be useful in the moment when an unbeliever comes to us in their mimicry. They mimic what they think pleases God. And when we have conversations about what faith requires, they'll turn to the work side of their relationship almost inevitably and usually right away. What a great opportunity to take them through the reality that the relationship that will save us is not one based on what we do, but on who we are in Christ. To know that that's the rub, to know that that's the distinction, clarifies that conversation for us and often helps us get to the main point. I hope that's helpful to you. I hope when you look at Esau and you see what he's doing, you can see in his example, maybe some people you know, and for some, maybe you see yourself. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that all who would hear today and in any future day would be asking themselves a question from what they've seen in your word this, this morning. They would be asking themselves, are they standing in a relationship built on faith and the gospel? Or have they been standing in their own power, mimicking what they see in others around them? Faith, Father, is a gift. With it comes the recognition that you have called us out of a life of disobedience and have placed on us no burden except the call to be obedient to our Master. And works, Father, is the yoke that no man can bear, that can never delight and never save, that will lead us, Father, to a moment when our wages will be repaid in death. And I pray, Father, that we know the difference, that you would show it to us in our hearts. And as we go out attempting to bring this good news to others, I pray, Father, you would give us insight as we watch others at work. You'd see, you'd show us what you see, their attempts to reach by their work, something that cannot be reached in that way. And that as they mimic and as they repeat what they hear from others, I pray, Father, you give us the clarity to break through and to show them the truth in a way that will convict Help us to be ambassadors in that way, Father. And send us out from here encouraged, Father, to know that this is a power that comes from you and does not rest on our skill or the cleverness of our words. Thank you for a church, Father, that has so many who know you and follow you and desire to serve you. And I pray, Father, you'd grow us as you see fit according to your will and in your day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.